Well, hey guys, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we're passionate about the beautiful simplicity and transformative power of the gospel. I am so glad that you're here today. Hey, if you've been watching the channel for a bit and you're enjoying it and you're like the vast majority of people who watch it but haven't subscribed, I might just ask and I, I might suggest if you if you want maybe click that subscribe button to become a part of this community and if you're feeling wild and crazy if today you're ready to live on the edge maybe click that notification bell as well to stay in the loop with everything going on here at gospel simplicity well Guys, today's interview is with Dr. Matthew Thomas. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We talk about the old and new perspectives on Paul and what does it mean when Paul talks about works of the law and how does that work into our salvation? What is the role of works and faith? It's fascinating. I think you'll really enjoy it. Before we jump into it, I want to say a real quick thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly out of their great generosity to support what we're doing here. Thank you all so much. If you want to become a patron, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity, and that link will be in the description down below. I also want to thank my sponsor for today, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. They do this by creating these beautiful Bibles with full-page photos and beautiful text layouts that will cause you to slow down, read more contemplatively, and I think you'll just engage with the Bible in a different way. I think you'll get more out of it, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So if you've heard me say this perhaps a bunch of times and you still haven't checked them out, go do it at kindredapostle.com and use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. You'll be glad you did. Well, with all that being said, here's the video. Dr. Matthew J. Thomas received his Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford, and he is Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California. He is also an instructor in theology with the Regent College in Vancouver. He's the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Paul's Works of the Law and the Perspective of Second Century Reception. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for being here today. Awesome. Thanks for having me here. It is my pleasure. And so I'd love to start with just asking, how did you get interested in this topic of Paul's works of the law? It's a big debate uh, in theological circles, and especially from this perspective of looking at second century reception. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I didn't get into this debate from trying to get into this debate. Um, I got into this debate, honestly, just, just as a kid. I mean, is that kind of how faith works you know, justification, all those things related to each other um, from the time when I'd become a Christian, which is when I was going into fourth grade onwards, trying to make sense of that was always a, a big deal for me. And I think uh, not not being able to make sense of it was something that was, you know, really you know, difficult in my own, own faith for a long time. So I really started to engage this more when I was, so my, my background is working in inner city ministry. And so I was working for um, an after school program in Oakland and uh, just running this this ministry there, and as as part of it, uh, would go and just teach on scripture every day. So I teach like a little like Bible verse and everything. And uh, so I would, I would do this every day. And I, you know, I wasn't from a, a kind of ministry background. I had fallen fallen into this after after college, but just loved it, and it was fan fantastic. Um, yeah, just context to be able to ser serve and minister in. And I, I got into the work of N.T. Wright uh, when I was when I was do doing that, and I think especially within that context, I I was asking a lot of questions 
related sort you know how to how do faith and works relate how do these things relate to final judgment what is like what does paul actually mean by faith what is this thing that um you know we're, we're trying to go and to, to you know to inculcate and share and how do these dichotomies work and uh, you know i think in that particular context you know when you have um you know maybe 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 good and evil are a little bit uh more stark sometimes you can say uh when you're when you're operating you know more more difficult kinds of contexts um i was just just thinking about these things a lot and it was you know they were part part of my teaching and part of the questions that i was asking and so i i had gotten into nt Wright's uh material i i i got his uh his romans in a week class that he he did at regent back like in the early 90s or something like that and as part of it, he was talking about the word faith and how the word faith also means faithfulness, how it means pistis. Uh, sorry, sorry, how the word pistis, the Greek word, it means faith, faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity. And as a result, I think this is as it relates to the kind of faith of Christ or faithfulness uh, of Christ debate. Um, and as soon as I heard that, I thought, wait a second. If faith actually means faithfulness as well, then this dichotomy that I have in my head of kind of like a sort of passive belief on one side versus really anything on the other side. It's really hard to see how that would make sense as being what, what Paul was talking about, because it's almost like you would end up with both terms on the same side. If this is, you know, faithfulness versus good works, think how, how does that actually work as a dichotomy? What's going on here? And so, that's actually, you know, what really first got me uh, asking the question: What does what does Paul mean by works of the law? Is that if if faith means something more than just a kind of you know cognitive assent or a personal you know belief? If it's the actual quality of you know of trusting God like Abraham had, what's what's on the other side of this dichotomy? How does this whole thing work? And so, um, those are those are questions that I was just trying to answer for for myself and trying to figure out. And I, um, I ended up going up to Regent College myself and studying there. And uh, so, when I first started, I I, I wrote a, uh, a a paper for for J.I. Packer on the the books that. Uh, so this is when I first started getting the old and new perspective on Paul stuff. This is with that uh, with John Piper and um, N.T. Wright. Austin, I don't know if if you were around back when those were. Uh, kind of big, big live debates and everything. I've read the books, but I'm not, I'm not sure when they actually first came out. Okay. Yeah. I want to say maybe Piper's was, oh, I can't, I forget the dates. Anyway, it was like in the late, the late 2000s, I, I think. So, um, I, so I got kind of these and I, you know, writing, uh, you know, writing, writing paper for, um, for Packer on this. This is looking at, at the two sides and while I found that overall, it seemed to me that, that Wright had, arguments that made more sense of the biblical data, it still seemed like they were just talking past each other so, so often. And it also seemed to me that, you know, that Piper had, you know, good points here and there where he would go and say, you know, Wright doesn't go and try to take seriously the wisdom of the centuries in a way that, you know, it really does justice to God's work throughout, throughout history. And he contrasts them interestingly with the reformers and said, yeah, the reformers, they tried to go and to link up what they were doing with, you know, what the early church fathers were doing, et cetera. And right. He doesn't do that. He just says, here's, I got this new perspective. Here it is. So here's brand new. It's, uh, you know, kind of hot off the presses, which that's a caricature, but I could, I I still thought that had, that had some force to it. 
And as I was looking in, in, in you know, both of their kind of the, the writings back and forth on justification, it seemed like the central area where they were talking past each other was works of the law. Uh, it seems like it, at le- when they were talking about faith and when they were talking about justification, it seemed like they were at least kind of in the same playing field. When it came to works of the law, it was just all over the place. Uh, they're just totally talking past each other. And it seemed like as I was getting into to these more, that this was, you know, really the big hinge between the, the old and new perspectives. And so the following semester, I said, I'm going to, you know, I'll write a paper on, on works of the law and really focus on this and see if I can kind of get to the, to the bottom of this or figure out new angles to go look at it from. And so what, what started as a basic, just exegetical kind of paper, like everybody has been writing for the past few decades, <laughs> um, it, it turned into a different kind of project when I was reading Calvin's commentary on Romans. And uh, for, as a student of Packers, I had read a, a bunch of Calvin the previous semester. So I was really used to, I don't know if you've read a whole lot of Calvin, but he's always citing the church fathers all the time. And sometimes uh, he, the, the church fathers don't always agree with him precisely as much as he claims that they do. <laughs> uh, it, it kind of varies from instance to instance, but he, he's always making appe- appeal to them and they're important for, you know, sor- as, as sources of theology. And so I was reading a, a, uh, in his co- Romans commentary at Romans 3.20 um, and he says, you know, from we reckon man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he says there, it is a matter of doubt, even amongst the learned, what the works of the law mean. And then he goes and says, some, so Origen, Christosom, and Jerome, they take these by the insertion of the word law. I take this to mean you know, the Jewish ceremonies. And he goes on to describe this position. And as I'm reading this position, I think to myself, this sounds a lot like what N.T. Wright is saying. <laughs> like not, not precisely when it comes to terminology with the content of it, it seemed very close to what it was that we know is the, the, new, the new perspective. And then he goes after that and he says, I'm not unaware that, you know, Augustine has a different position from my own on this. So he goes and says what Augustine's position is, which is that works as a law is any works that are done apart from God's grace, but that it doesn't account, uh, doesn't incorporate those works that are empowered by God's grace, which according to Augustine, works empowered by God's grace do justify and so he says, here's why Augustine's wrong. And then he gives his own position. It says that works the law is, is really anything. is anything that is done, you know, by human power, divine power, et cetera. And then moves on. And I just thought to myself, this is very strange. I, it was something I hadn't seen Calvin do before where he, especially on a disputed question where he'll say, here's the fathers that disagree with me, but doesn't go and give you the fathers that are on, on his side. And so I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I wonder if you were to look in the in the early fathers, you know, their kind of Paul's earliest readers, how they would understand works of the law, what they understood him to mean by these things. And I also had, you know, stuff like, you know, Piper's critique of, of Wright, uh, where he goes and says, yeah, you have to take seriously the wisdom of the centuries and thought. And this is interesting because as far as, you know, reconciling and providing some kind of common ground for the old and new perspectives, uh, you know, maybe there's some real, real potential with the material here. And so I... I just, I spent the next few, I changed my paper topic, spent the next few days writing, um, you know, a paper on this. And when I was looking at these early sources, I mean, I basically found what, what Calvin was saying was that, you know, the earliest interpreters were saying stuff that sounded a lot 
like N.T. Wright and the, the new perspective. Um, and on the other side, it was really difficult to find anything that had real precedence for the kind of um, interpretation that, that Calvin was getting. So that was a paper that turned into an article, which turned into a dissertation, which turned into one book and now a second edition of the book. So it's a long, uh, a long answer to a, a, short, a short question. And I could have just said accidentally because I wasn't trying to go into you know, solve, solve any big issues for anybody else. It was just for myself. I just wanted to understand scripture better and, you know, be able to, to, to teach it in my, my own context more, more faithfully. So. No, thank you for sharing that. And that's, I always love hearing how people come to their dissertation topics or their research areas. And I love that it started in a ministry context. I don't think that many people, when they think of new perspectives on Paul, think of something as on the ground as, inner city ministry. I think a lot of people think, yes, for like N.T. Wright and his ivory tower at Oxford and the other theologians with a lot of time on their hands to kind of quibble over or something. But, you know, maybe this doesn't get down onto the ground. But I love that it started there. And then you kind of chase this rabbit trail a long ways. One thing I want to just clarify. Can I just toss one fun story in there? I mean, this is absolutely, I was, uh, I I wrote, uh, my friend Matt Halstead, I did a a, a little blog interview thing with him, but it was funny because he was kind of asking more in depth how this got got started. And this got started for me uh, the one day that I had uh, one of our, one of our kids in our program uh, was telling me that he was going to kill somebody else. And, uh, you know, who had been wronging for a long time. And the, the person was, was a Christian who was, you know, and, and some like, you know, authority, but had been doing things that, you know, he regarded as really wrong, everything like that. And so uh, he, uh, he told, I mean, I remember very, <laughs> very clearly him telling me that he was going to go and kill them. And uh, I, I remember I went and I told him, look, it's not your job to go and to take vengeance. Vengeance is God's. And he says that he is going to repay. And so, Everything this person is doing, you don't need to go and to let that get you off of track of what it is that God wants you to do. He is going to be the one who's going to go and set things, whatever is wrong, he's going to go and set it right. But I was thinking afterwards and really dwelling on this and thinking, actually, within my own kind of theological background, um, it actually wasn't clear how it was that a Christian relates to the final judgment. And this is tied in with, you know, faith works, you know, et cetera. Um, because there's, you know, there's theological, you know, voices that I, you know, were, you know, part of my life and nutrition, everything that were like, basically a Christian, you know, skips the judgment line. If you, if you're a Christian, you're a baptized Christian, you know, fill fill in the blank. Um, that, that judgment line is for other people. Um, that's, that's not, not for you in any kind of, any kind of substantive way. And I, I didn't really have a clear, I'm, you know, I remember talking to, I, I remember telling, uh, you know, Dr. Packer the same incident in his, in his office and having a conversation about this, uh, which was basically asking the question, is, you know, is what I told this kid true? And, you know, how does, how, how does it work? So uh, it, it, it came from, uh, uh, I mean, all, you know, all, all these kinds of things. It was, I can, I can point back to this mode of telling, uh, you know, this, is, this, is, this is Jonathan. Jonathan, if you're listening, I've talked to him about this since then. and said, hey, my research, I can point back to the time that I told you not to kill this person. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of all, all tied and connected. Wow, that's quite the origin story for this. That's, that's fascinating. Before we go too far, 
I always try to make sure that I can make these accessible to people who maybe are late to a conversation or just new to these things. New perspective, old perspective on Paul. They've heard you talk about faith, works, works of the law. For people that are familiar, you know, they can skip ahead a little bit, but could you just give a quick, uh, like, clarifying of terms? What is the old perspective on Paul? What is the new perspective on Paul? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, If you're thinking old perspective, it usually refers to Luther and Calvin and then those that have followed within the, you know, the, the Lutheran Reformed traditions. And that their understanding of Paul and his opponents, his interlocutors, that has, you know, been, I think, dominant within biblical studies, you know, over the past centuries, up really until the late 70s, early 80s. Um, the new perspective on Paul uh, really starts with with Ed Sanders, uh, with Paul and Palestinian Judaism. There's, there's important forerunners to what Sanders is doing, but that's when it really seems to go. And this is just kind of a collective light bulb. Um, and then you get quickly the, the work of, of Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Wright as well. So in the late, late 70s, early 80s, what Sanders is saying is that the picture of Paul and his opponents that was painted by Luther and those within uh, these kinds of Reformation traditions, these are basically a projection of Luther's own critiques of the late medieval Catholic Church onto Paul's opponents that this wasn't actually what they were talking about. So when Luther is talking about, you know, justification by faith alone and is saying, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is that his, that his opponents are basically doing the same thing that uh, you, the Jews were doing his, his day. He just says, this is, this is just a projection. This is anachronistic. If you look at Jews within Paul's day, they weren't doing, they, they didn't sound anything like Pelagius, for example. So Pelagius, you know, Augustine's, uh, you know, big opponent who's, uh, is you know known for trying to you know save himself by his own works, etc. He just says this isn't this isn't what these debates were like. So, whereas I can, if if you uh, a quick a quick sort of shorthand for the old perspective on works of the law, they tend to think the emphasis tends to be on works in general, so that these are things you know it, it can it can honestly be anything that you know that that one does, which goes and fits within this 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 theological category. And the significance of practicing them it has an individual significance, or at least that's where the emphasis lies. That is to say that in, in performing works, one is trying to earn one's own salvation. So there's, I mean, you can conceptualize this in funny ways. Like if I, if I do this work, I get this many points. If I do this work, I get this many points. You add up the points. And if you get enough points, you go to heaven, you know, something like that. That's a, that's a caricature, but at least gives you a sense of the kinds of ways that this, you know, this, this logic, logic can, can, can go. Um, and so, they, and so for, for Luther and Calvin, that's what they understand Paul to be, to be reacting against is uh, an individualistic kind of, um, you know, self salvation uh, that Paul's interlocutors are, you know, are performing. So this can, you know, moralism, good works, Fill, fill, fill in the blank. Uh, the new perspective, they understand the emphasis uh, with works of the law to be on the law. And when, it, when they say law, they don't mean just law in general. It's, it's specifically the Torah. So the question is, do Christians within the new covenant need to continue obeying the Torah? And when you're obeying the Torah, then that, that context, there's certain things that are always coming up according to Sanders done right. So um, food laws, Sabbath keeping, um, circumcision. Uh, and for them, 
the reason that Paul is reacting against this uh, or the significance of going and practicing these kinds of things is not an individualistic, you know, you're trying to work your way up to heaven. It's that when you do these things, you become part of the Jewish covenant. You become part of the Jewish nation and you separate yourself from the Gentiles. And so it has a communal rather than an individual significance. Um, and why does, you know, why does that matter? Well, the Jews are God's people. And so if you're going to be saved, you need to be part, part, part of the Jews. And so that's from their standpoint, why is that, uh, you know, what it is that, you know, Paul is, is reacting against with what he goes and says and going and putting faith in, in Christ and, uh, you know, and, and, and distinction to that. Now, you can get really interesting diversity when it, the logic of each of these figures is taken into account. And I think that's really important because, um, I mean, even just between Luther and Calvin, the way that they understand Paul's reasoning to work, even if they think Paul is talking about similar things uh, to, to one another, from, from Calvin's standpoint, the, really the issue is you just can't perform these works to any degree that's demanded by God because we, you know, we're, you know, we're, de we're depraved and even under grace, even regenerate, we still can't go and produce sufficient works to, in order to be able to meet the demands of a perfect God. Um, therefore you can never go and do that. And you need basically someone else's, you know, perfection, someone else's merit to go and count in your stead. It's really interesting because Luther's logic, it actually goes farther than Calvin's in problematizing not just the fact that one can't can't arrive at the destination, but that the direction itself is misguided. That you shouldn't even be trying to save yourself by works of the law. You shouldn't be trying to do all these these works to earn salvation. And actually to do so is the epitome of sin for Luther. And so he is really interesting uh, and theological, there's fascinating stuff, stuff that's there. Um, which is just directions that Calvin doesn't really go. And you can see that in some of the critiques, um, you know, over faith and works between Lutherans and, you know, those, those, uh, those were, you know, reformed, broadly speaking, his historically. And just a lot of the back and forth is reflected in the way that they understand Paul's logic to, to work here. Um, even more so, there's a lot of diversity between Sanders, Dunn, and Wright when it comes to, the you know the their understanding of why is that Paul is saying what he's what he's saying, and um, while when it comes to you know, the basic question of what's what is Paul reacting against and what's the significance of it, so what what's the meaning of works of the law, what's the significance of practicing them? There's a lot of correspondence between the, the these early sources and uh, you know and the new the new perspective, but when it comes to the logic behind it, how it works. It's really all over the place, and there's lots of stuff that we that the new perspective goes and says. So Sanders or, or Dan go and say that honestly don't have any correspondence in the early church. And then conversely, there's there's at least some lines of argumentation from the old perspective that you know that is represented, even if it doesn't. The pieces don't come together in quite the same way for these early early sources. So that's really helpful, and. I appreciate you breaking those down and also showing the diversity within these things, because I think sometimes it can be easy to use a term like new perspectives on Paul and assume that everyone that falls under that general camp thinks the same thing. And likewise, with old perspectives on Paul, everyone thinks the same thing. While there's common characteristics, I appreciate that nuance as well. I think that's helpful. 
in your book, you add kind of this third element. You talk about the old perspective on Paul, the new perspective on Paul, and the early perspective on Paul. As you look through how did the earliest Christians receive this? And you mentioned, interestingly enough for you, that this kind of came through Piper's critique of Wright, saying that Wright wasn't dealing with the early church, but at least, you know, Calvin and Luther were looking at the early church. And so by way of them, you know, maybe the old perspective has more merit in that ground. I think your book really adds something to this conversation. And I think that's probably in part why it's been received so well, it seems. I mean, you've got, uh, got gotten praise from McGrath, Alistair McGrath, N.T. Wright, but also I appreciated, and I don't know if this was your choice, the editors, but the first review of the book on the inside cover was actually Douglas Moo, who doesn't probably agree with your conclusions in part, um, being more of an old perspective guy, but the book has been really well received and it adds this extra layer to the conversation. Why do you think this hasn't featured as prominently in the past as far as the early reception? And how do you think this affects the debate? Does this kind of um, bring us past the stand, the the gridlock that we're at? Yeah. Let me take the second question first. Um, the second question, I think, is probably for other people to say more than it is for me to say. This is for, for myself. I can say that as as a fellow reader of Paul, as somebody who's trying to you know read and understand Paul as 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 much as you are, as much as any, anybody else is, um, I found this early material to be hugely helpful, and I think that particularly on this question, the way that the earlier reception is so coherent and so cohesive, and I think it, it, there's there's so much of Scripture that I, I feel that I understand more clearly um, in light of, you know, taking, you know, early reception se- seriously. Um, from, my, from my standpoint, I think it's, it is really helpful. Um, and I think on the other side, um, I don't know if, if one was wanting to go and to basically argue against you know, kind of, you know, all, all of early reception in this, in this area and say, you know, everybody kind of has, has it wrong. And, you know, I've, I've got it right here. I am. This is what it ha- happens to be. Um, to me, it's, that just strikes me as a difficult h- historical position to substantiate because I do think um, there, you know, there's a great line from, from Tom Schreiner where he talks about how, you know, the preservation of Paul's letters, you know, by the early churches suggests that, the worldviews of those, you know, those people in the early churches were related to Paul's own worldviews and, and the, you know, the issues that they engaged. And I think, I think that's, I think that's correct. And I think that um, if we, if we just say, oh, they're talking about something completely different. They, they've completely lost Paul's, Paul's own context. I don't think that that takes seriously enough the way that these, you know, Paul's, Paul's writings were, you know, were, were treated as, 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 uh, as the authorities you know, within, within the early centuries of, of the church. So, you know, from my standpoint, uh, it's hard for me to not regard this as decisive 
when you do have the clarity that's here. I think it just in general, when you have the early church in, in any context speaking with, you know, clarity and cohesion, et cetera. Um, it's just, I just find that hard, hard to argue, argue against. Not everybody is the same way. People are wired differently. There's certain people who are just like, yeah, the early church says this and I don't care. Like, I just, <laughs> I just think, I just think they're wrong and I'm right. And, um, and yeah, the, you know, um, so I, I, that's just to say, I, it's I, for someone who's wired, I think the way that, 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 that I am, um, you know, I have, I have that, that those the quotes from Irenaeus and, and C.S. Lewis in the beginnings of, of part three and part, part four on, you know, the importance of, you know, early interpretation for, for being able to understand any kind of historical phenomena. Um, that, that goes a long, a long way with me, but it's, it'll kind of depend, I think, on where one is, 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 is coming from. And in some ways, because I'm the guy who, who wrote it, I'm probably the least qualified to say, hey, does this, does this solve this? Does this not solve, solve this? Um, I'm just trying, trying to help as best I can. Um, with, with the first part, I, I think that this goes back to a division that we have within, within a kind of academia more broadly, because this isn't just a, a biblical studies issue. This is something that you find across academia, which is the difficulty of everybody just going into their respective silos and not, I mean, we, at, in Oxford, we had this all the time. This is something that is Graham, Graham Ward, who's, um, who's in charge of, of theology over there. We would work together on trying to figure out how to bring the different branches of theological inquiry together at Oxford, because your Old Testament people just go do Old Testament stuff. Your Paul people just go do Paul things. And, you know, your modern theology people just go do modern stuff. And it's this is a cross, you know, this is a cross di- dis- disciplines. It's just all, all over the place. Um, you tend to focus really narrowly in your own area. And this is especially, I think, the case within New Testament studies. I think we tend to go into focus in our period we kind of do this and we have to, you know, learn a bunch of languages and we have to learn German and et cetera and all these kinds of things. And uh, we tend to not get around to going and reading the early fathers in any kind of, you know, systematic, you know, way. And there's part of that that I think is actually wired into the DNA of the discipline, because I think as a modern academic discipline, I think that there is an idea, uh, you know, behind modern New Testament studies that we don't want biblical interpretation to be con- conditioned by tradition we want it to be independent of tradition because we want you know the text to be able to critique tradition to be able to act as a guide and a check against tradition and i think there's a lot to be said for that you know for for that 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 in- instinct um from my standpoint what i would say is that what it can potentially neglect and often has neglected historically is how early reception in particular is also a part of historical inquiry. And I think that if you don't take early interpretation seriously, um, then you're actually being not more historical, you're actually being less historically rig- rigorous. Um, and I think uh, for, for me personally, a huge influence on me has been, been Marcus Bachmill, who's uh, the chair of scripture um, over, over in Oxford. And he's uh, methodologically, he's just, 
he's just brilliant. He's really good at spelling out all this and how if you're really going to be fully historical, you have to take the historical footprint seriously as well. You can't just leave leave that out because it goes and you know these texts create phenomena that themselves require some kind of explanation. So uh, his his book, Seeing the Word, uh, if you've ever come across it, it's it's fantastic and it's, it's been really influential in me and my methodology. So um, that's a bit of why I think this has happened. Um, and so that's, you know, that's why I, I, I did a doctorate both in, in patristics and, and New Testament. And I, and I hope, I hope that this, this can be, you know, kind of bringing together these, these kind of disciplines that are sometimes separated, um, you know, can be, can be helpful. Yeah. I think you, there's so much we could talk about there. I mean, the over-specialization in academia, I think, has really interesting implications for the church and that we have people doing great work in this one silo, but they're not talking to the people over here. And so we're not actually benefiting necessarily from everything in there. And I know it's conversations I've had with many of my professors and also seen firsthand in the classroom of even talking to say like an old Testament professor who will say, ah, that's a new Testament thing. Or I don't know, I lose interest after the Assyrian period. Like that's just not my thing. Ask someone else. And I get, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and so many things to research, but I think there's, there's lots, um, Lots to think about there for the future. Something I, I want to ask, though, is my, my channel is very diverse. And so there's a lot of Catholics, a lot of Orthodox, a lot of Protestants listening. And so far, the majority of names, perhaps almost all of them, that have been referenced, we've got, you know, N.T. Wright and Piper, Packer, all these guys, uh, Doug Moo, they're all Protestants. And this debate seems to have occurred a lot within kind of the Protestant theological circles. But what implications does this have for my Catholic or Orthodox uh, listeners? Do, do they have a seat at this table? And where does, where does this fit in with maybe their perspective? Hey, we'll be right back to the interview. But first, I want to tell you about another sponsor for today, and that is Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors that exist to help you get the help you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was called You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. And what I wanted to do in that video was draw out the fact that so many people are struggling with mental health. And the last thing we want to do is make it more difficult for people to reach out to get the help they need by creating this stigma around it. It's something that I'm really passionate about and think we need to end in Christian circles. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. Their counselors all will be counseling from a Christian perspective, and you can connect with them from any country in the world. They have counselors that speak many different languages. And hey, if it's important to you to have a counselor from your specific tradition or background, they can do their part to try to pair you up with one of them as well. All of their counselors are licensed with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with these counselors in a variety of ways. Four, in fact, you can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, or messaging. All of the messaging is secure. And if it's between scheduled sessions, you'll receive a response within 24 to 48 hours. If this is interesting to you, if you think this would be helpful for you or maybe a loved one, I'd encourage you to go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, first of all, you'll get 10% off your order and you'll be matched with the counselor in less than 24 hours hours. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity to be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours and get 10% off your first month. Faithful Counseling costs $260 per month, which gets you unlimited messaging with your counselor and four 30-minute sessions. But again, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, you'll get 10% off that first month. 
Lastly, faithful counseling is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line or hotline. You can find one of them at www.crisistextline.org. Please do so. Reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Well, thank you all so much, and I will let you get back to the video, but if you want to check them out, again, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. The link is in my bio and in the pinned comment. Well, back to the interview. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a great question. First off, just with what you said with Doug, I really appreciate Doug's work as well, and um, I mean the same thing. I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, you know, having um, he's he's something I've, I've corresponded with over the years as I've because I made him. You know, he's one of the main interlocutors that I have in the book, and so he was very gracious in reading over you know the sections I, I had. And he was, I mean, he was he was like he even identified the places where there's tensions in my theology, and um, so I mean over the years I've I've been able to just write right back and forth with him, and it does mean a lot to to me to have. You know, have have his endorsement of, of the project because um, I I just he think he's uh, you know he's, he's a great great exegete and somebody whose thought is really worth taking seriously and somebody who I've got a lot of you know insight from as well. Um, with the question more broadly, you know it's interesting because biblical studies in general and then really Pauline studies in particular is it's fundamentally a Protestant discipline. Um, that's just where where the roots are. Um, it's a it's a party that other people can come to as well, but I think that you're I think that you're you're right, Austin. I think that that's just um, you know academic biblical studies as far as you know kind of pushing the envelope, getting your kind of latest greatest developments, etc. Um, it it's just historically been a a, a Protestant di- discipline. Um, it's been really interesting, actually. Some of the some of the most um, it, the people who I guess in, uh, responded most enthusiastically to this project. I mean, well, I guess one one of them is, is Anglicans, um, and you know, Anglicans are uh, a f- sort of a fun kind of kind of chameleon uh, when it comes to uh, you know broader uh, kind of Catholic you know Protestant sort, sort sorts of things. So they so they you know there's been a lot of uh, yeah just you know great support from people like Alistair. Um, I've had a lot. It's really interesting. I've had a lot of support this pro- uh, this this project from from uh, Orthodox readers, um, who uh, this started with uh, Father Andrew Louth, who's a great great theologian who read this um, early on. So he read the dissert- dissertation version quite quite early on. It was a huge huge support in kind of getting it out out there and you know spread and just breathing encouragement. Then since then, I've had a, a number of uh, a number of or- Orthodox readers. Um, who have just been really enthusiastic about it. Um, and I, I think in some ways, this is perhaps less about my, my own book in the, in the topic and perhaps has more to do with the methodology and how the methodology, which is more fully outlined by people like, like Marcus Bach, you know, it gives a real seat at the table for tradition not as tradition it's not saying like hey here's tradition here's this great thing and we're going to listen to tradition instead of instead of the bible but recognizing the nature of tradition as itself a part of history and particularly early tradition as you know early early history history that uh, needs to be accounted for in some in some way um 
you know, they, they in particular have just been really enthusiastic and appreciative of that, which uh, has, you know, has, has, has been great just because I have a little bit less, uh, you know, experience in those, in those contexts. And so I've been really appreciative and I've, I've had, you know, a great deal. I've been able to learn uh, from, you know, from, from, from them just as, as readers as well. You know, I think uh, if you're thinking kind of Protestant Catholic Orthodox, um, it's, it's no secret that there's, you know, implications uh, ecumenically for, you know, these, these kinds of things um, and engaging these, these topics. And so, you know, from my standpoint, I try to go and to be as sensitive to that as possible and, you know, being, you know, I guess you could say being, being descriptive, but not, not prescriptive as far as, you know, what one has to go and do with, you know, various, um, interpretive moves historically, everything, everything like that. Um, I do think at least my, my hope is that when it comes to broader ecumenical dialogue between, you know, between Catholics, Protestants, et cetera, um, that there is that material like this can be useful for talking about justification and understanding how it is that, you know, faith works, et cetera, how these things all go and, and relate to one another. Um, I also think it can be really helpful for going and understanding better the differences between different kinds of Protestantism as well, because that's just one of the things that I've, I've, you know, I came, came away from this project was really uh, an increased appreciation for the distinctiveness of Luther and of Calvin and of the theological systems that, you know, are, are related to, you know, to, to these two figures. And I think that you can see this, within, um, you know, as it now maps onto contemporary interpretation, because, um, you know, I think if one is, you know, it's really interesting, you know, Luther himself, uh, you know, a lot of the strongest things that, uh, I guess you could say, some of those kind of polemical things that he he has to say uh, on this topic are actually not against, against Catholics. They're against other Protestants, so against you know the Zwinglians, which is you know of course the Reformed, um, and you know the Anabaptists as well. Who he just links them together with the Papists and says their understanding of works as being necessary, um, they they all get it wrong, and they all basically go and they uh, they kind of all basically end up cutting out you know Christ as as a result. And you can see how that you know fast forward five hundred years, if you're looking within. Um, you know, contemporary, you know, Protestant interpretation, there's definitely, um, I think it probably continues on that it's a little harder to go and to figure out how to integrate this, this early reception, you know, material within a, a Lutheran framework, but within a reformed framework, um, it seems to me that it's, it is more easy to go into do this, and something that I've I've picked up a lot just from the various reformed readers that I've I've had of this book who've um, just been really helpful in you know showing me how there's and again I say reform different reformed people do this in different different ways, um, and so I've I've had reform you know folks who uh, for whom this has been really difficult and really challenging, and I've had other ones who have just said, yeah, this is absolutely what what we believe. Like this is this totally fits with what we're saying and, you know, what we think. And so some of this touch, you know, gets into some of the more controversial kinds of things. I know there was a, uh, so a few years ago, um, there's a, there's a, a big, uh, boy, I don't know, maybe big strong word, but there's, there's a controversy with, with, with John Piper 
And with the forward he wrote to Tom Schreiner's book where he goes and says, you know, was on this book on faith alone. He says, you know, faith, faith alone is necessary for entering into a right relationship with God, but faith alone is not sufficient for getting into heaven. There are other conditions that are necessary for this. And then he goes and he kind of talk, talks about this and how it you know, relates to holiness, how it goes and relates to all these other, other things. And Schreiner has, you know, similar statements, you know, that he makes. And it's really interesting. I mean, for somebody just, again, is just trying to be a student and learn as much as they can and seeing the, the reaction back and forth. There's a lot of reformed people who, you know, looked at that and say, these guys are terrible, get them out of here, they're the worst. And there's other reformed people who are saying, no, this is what the reformed confessions say. And this, you have to believe this. This is what the Bible goes and says. And from my standpoint, you know, I can't, I, I can't, I'm not smart enough to work out who's right there in relation to the various reformed confessions. But I can say, that what people like Piper and Schreiner are saying there is actually quite compatible with the, you know, the early reception that, you know, that I've, I've you know, come across and actually more compatible with somebody like Wright than perhaps we might be led to believe. So that's really interesting how it's kind of highlighted some of the differences within Protestantism, because just like old perspectives and new perspectives aren't completely monolithic, even more so, of course, Protestantism isn't monolithic and you're going to have very different ways of approaching these things. And I thought that was one of the really interesting points of your book of the differences between Luther and Calvin on this, because we like to think of, well, they both believed in sola fide and everyone must mean the same thing by sola fide. But there's there's a lot of nuance there. And perhaps sometimes we take that in a truncated form, which might be highlighted by Piper and Schreiner there. I, I think that there's so much... Uh, so much to, to think about and reflect on there. And I, I appreciate also just kind of the ecumenical implications you brought up in general and how this really does bring uh, maybe people who weren't in this conversation, it gives them a seat at the table because it's using more of a hermeneutical method that might be more familiar to them of let's read these texts with the tradition and see not, you know, tradition as this necessarily separate thing, but what the early interpreters thought is going to inform how we think of it. So it really does have this way of touching on a whole lot of groups and some are going to love it and some might love it less, but it's, it's going to make an impact. And I think that's just really interesting to see how, how very, or how, how many people this touches and in the ways that it does. I'd love to know for you, I mean, how has this changed how you look at salvation? I mean, you went into this with this question of, faith works. And it's a big question for old perspectives, new perspectives. You said you went in, you weren't really sure. And you saw that the early perspectives were very much saying that, hey, the works of the law are referring to the ceremonial works. But what, what kind of implications does that have for someone? Is that just like a, that's an easy theological change to make? Or is that, has that been quite a uh, impactful thing for you? And maybe for some of your readers, if you've heard from them? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Again, I got into this from, you know, trying to answer questions for myself and also just kind of, you know, pastoral questions. And I have, I've, I've found this material really helpful. If, if it's okay, um, you know, I found as I was going through this that there's two different things we're talking about. One is the broader kind of soteriological paradigm that you find within early Christianity, which I think is, you know, I, I, the, you know the same that you find within, within scripture as well. And then the other is the specific question of, of works of the law and, you know, the, the, the question of obedience to, to the works of the law. Um, if it's okay, I, so in the, within the, the preface to the new, the new edition of the book, I, I talk about this a little bit and, and I, um, 
I can just read this. It's just two, two, two paragraphs here. And so if you like this, here you go. You can, uh, there's, there's more where this comes from if you, if you like, like this. So uh, this is one of the areas that I was asked to expand on a lot in the book, um, which is not just kind of the worst of the law question, but, you know, patristic soteriology more, more broadly has, has work. And it's something that I just came across all like all over the place when I was reading these early sources. So, uh, so the first area I was asked to expand on is on the broader patristic uh, framework of salvation described on page 279. So this is at the, the end of the book. That initial justification is completely by grace, apart from works of any sort, and that final judgment or final justification is based on the outworking of this grace in one's subsequent life. These two sides of the patristic framework can be well illustrated using Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant as an analogy. While the servant is granted an inconceivable gift simply by his petition, without being able to give anything, this gift is meant to be transformative in the servant's life. When the servant is judged according to his deeds, which have manifestly not been transformed by the king's mercy, all that remains for the servant is severe judgment. And then I'll continue on this next paragraph. A helpful example of this framework is found in Irenaeus' Against Heresies 427. Irenaeus describes how Old Testament figures merited less punishment for their sins, since they acted apart from the Spirit's empowerment, and those in the New Covenant should not despise them for their faults, since neither they nor we are justified by ourselves, but rather by Christ's advent. On the other hand, those in the New Covenant are now held accountable at a higher level, having now been the recipients of this saving power to which the patriarchs only looked forward. Recognizing that most will be demanded of, the, of those to whom Christ has given the most, Irenaeus counsels his readers not to judge these prior figures, but rather to fear lest we be cut off, which he illustrates using Paul's image of the olive tree from Romans 11. Such a framework underlies discussion on salvation in patristic sources, in which statements of salvation by grace and judgment by works are regularly presented with great emphasis in the same sources and even in the same passages. So growing up, I was used to either get a lot of one, you get a lot of other. And this is the thing that was so curious is how you get both of these at the same time in the same sources in the same passages. So along with examples noted here in the book, First uh, Clement 30 to, th uh, 30 to 35 and Polycarp 1 through 2, see also the striking passage in our earliest homily, which is Second uh, Clement 1 through 4. The lack of tension between these principles becomes clear when it is recognized that these sources regards God's grace as transformative so that one is enabled to live in a way that will be judged favorably at the last day. To paraphrase a later line from Augustine that corresponds with the testimony of these early sources, God's justifying grace turns an ungodly man into a godly one. So this is Spirit in letter 45. And one who disregards this power will be held more strictly accountable than one who has never known it. Within this broader soteriological framework, the early patristic sources regard the Mosaic Law's distinctive works as having no decisive role, either as the bearers of the grace of salvation or somehow prerequisites for it, or as criteria that will have any kind of significance at the last judgment. Um, that for me, that kind of di di this distinction was was really helpful to understand how it is that you know salvation is completely by grace in the sense that there's nothing that is a prerequisite for it in any sense. I I, I refer uh, later on there to John Barclay John Barclay's language, which I think is really helpful, 
where he describes how for you know for Paul, God's grace is unconditioned and that there's nothing that we do, you know, there's no conditions, there's no prerequisites, anything like that to go and to receive it, but that it's not unconditional. And it's not unconditional precisely because God's grace is transformative, precisely because it enables us to do what we could not have done otherwise on, on our own. Uh, so for me, that's that's been really helpful. And then seeing how you still affirm that fully. And in a sense, you can almost, I mean, there's not almost, you absolutely can go and take some of the things that that Luther goes and says, even some of his more radical things um, about, you know, about salvation, et cetera. And regardless of where you come, where you, where you come from the, theologically, if you apply all of that to initial justification, you can apply all of it. And I think make it, make it all work because there is nothing that goes and, you know, that we, that we bring, you know, to God, there's nothing that we bring, um, you know, to, to the cross in order to, you know, in order to, to merit the gift that God goes and gives us. But there's that gift goes and creates an accountability that we still live on. And this is what you find that early sources that this accountability is actually a higher accountability than what you have in the old covenant, because the gift itself is that much greater. Yeah. I, I can't help but maybe circle back real quick to the ecumenical implications of something like that, right? Because if someone like an N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican, which maybe that's not the best illustration because, he, you know, Anglicanism is kind of via media. But if, if, if someone can take some of those insights from Luther or Calvin and then incorporate this into their soteriology, and this is how they begin thinking about it, and they feel like this aligns with their tradition, at least broadly, that, it's, um, that they can hold the two together— how how far apart are Protestants and Catholics on this? Is this this seems to me to be quite a step forward towards a more joint understanding of justification? Do you feel that's the case, or is that too ambitious? You know, I think that it's going to be different within different kinds of Protestantism, and I think that the I in my view, I think that the most the most charitable thing that we can do is. Um, to go and to let you know each voice really speak for itself, um, because the different the different traditions of Protestantism, I think, um, they they speak in different ways on these on these questions. And so, you know, for instance, you know, uh, Luther looks at the Anabaptists, and he just says, "You guys are identical to the Catholics. You guys are." He calls them the new, the new monks. And says, you know, that the, the Catholics and the, and the Anabaptists, they're, they're foxes that are, you know, tied together at the tail. Um, and, but, but, you know, if you're looking within, you know, kind of contemporary evangelicalism and asking, you know, what is contemporary evangelicalism, at least in an you know, American sense, is it more influenced by, by Luther theologically or is it more influenced by Anabaptist theologically? I, I'd probably say it's, it seems more Anabaptist um, if you're just saying, you know, because even when it comes to say, like on the sacraments, for example, um, it's far more Anabaptist uh, than uh, you know than than, than Luther his, his theology, because he just has such, still such a strong sense of you know the sacraments are really God's means of going and affecting salvation in us. Um, so, I think. I, I want to say yes to that. <laughs> I want to go like, hey, everything's fantastic. It's all going to be wonderful. We're all just going to, everybody's going to hold hands, et cetera. Um, but, you know, when you, when you get into, when you really start to get into some of the, some of the debates that are there in the 16th century and some of the things that, for instance, 
separate Lutherans from Reformed and then even separate Lutherans from other Lutherans when you get kind of the Genesia Lutherans and then those who go and follow, follow Melanchthon. Um, this stuff is hard. It's, it is, it is, it is really, really tough. And it's often these what seem like small distinctions end up becoming what set whole you know bodies of Christendom kind of in isolation from 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 one another. And so I don't want to um, I don't want to go and under, understate the significance of some of these issues. I think perhaps the best thing that that I can aspire to, and this is what, is what I aspire to, is to try to take you know, the early reception as seriously as possible and to, you know, to hopefully uh, use that as common ground for, you know, how it is that we understand what it is that, that Paul is talking about. And I think that really anybody who takes these texts seriously as authorities, I mean, this is for me, this is what I, you know, what I, I recognize in myself was that uh, in, in taking these texts as authorities and taking the New Testament as, you know, as an authority, I'm trusting that God has continued to work at least through the first few centuries of the church when it comes to the preservation of the texts themselves and that, you know, when, you know, when the early Christians were basically said, Hey, give us, give us the books or die. They chose to die in a number of instances, you know, of persecution. So the, the preservation of the texts themselves, and then the decision of you know what which texts are themselves authoritative, which which what's authentically you know passed on as you know apostolic, etc. I, I rely on the early church for that, and I rely not not just in an independent sense, but I rely on God's work through the early church. And so I think because of that, even if one holds to a fall paradigm where you know hey, as soon as Constantine shows up, it all goes bad, or as soon as Origen shows up, it's all terrible. Which is sometimes you read Luther and you think. Yeah, the, the church was okay, and then Origen came along, and I think he's the fourth evil angel from Revelation for for for, uh, for Luther. It's really entertaining if you read his stuff in Revelation. Uh, whatever happens to be, nevertheless, this this early period, if we're going to take Scripture as an abiding authority, we already implicitly recognize that God has worked in a normative way through the early church and providing us with what He has. And so I. For for me, I think that 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 gives us something to go into lean into to hopefully provide common ground, and beyond that, I think we just you know we read, we study, we pray, and we you know we we try to go and to you know to love everybody as best as we can, try to understand where everybody's coming from as best as we can, because often I think that disposition of charity and trying to go and to listen to even people we disagree with can actually get us a long way, because even um, we just find this all the time, even even in people who you think are, are really wrong, um, they're, they're usually right about something in the way that they're wrong. There's some kind of truth that they're trying to hang on to. And that can often be something that we need, even if we don't know that we need it. I think that's a beautiful place to begin wrapping up this conversation. I really appreciate your perspective on this. I appreciate your work, what you're doing, and I've, I've benefited from my from it myself and I know the people who watch this or go on to read your book are going to really enjoy it whether it's really challenging to them or it's something that they welcome with open arms in any case I think it's at least going to provide a lot of food for thought and so thank you for that I'd love to know uh you you mentioned you know you're in the second edition of this this was your your dissertation and now you've done the book version twice and they asked for a little more patristic soteriology is, do you have a sense of kind of what's next? What, what's piquing your interest as you uh, continue these studies? 
Yeah, so I, I have a book uh, with St. Vladimir's that I've been working on for a long time on uh, Clement of Rome. So I've been trying to finish that. I just keep having every semester there's new new classes to teach. I teach, I teach you know, Old Testament, New Testament, and, and Patristics, which is a love. Um, and but you're just always developing new new classes, and so because of that, it's made it so it's been it's been difficult to have the time to finally finish this volume. So I'm hoping to finish this for uh, the popular patristic series. the The thing that i'm I'm hoping to do uh, after this is actually write an entirely different book um, which would be looking at early patristic soteriology. So just basically, how is it that salvation works within the early centuries of the church? How, how did early Christians understand, you know, everything that's related to salvation in Christ to go and fit, fit together? Because there's so much riches that you get from this period. And I'm just basically from, from my, uh, from, from, from my research over, over the years, I'm just sitting on this huge sort of pile of gold. I'm, I'm like, I don't know. Is it, is it Donald Duck? No, it's not Donald Duck. Which duck is it? Uh, Anyway, I'm thinking of uh, whichever, whichever, whichever deck it is from Looney Tunes who goes and has the big pile of gold and he swims in it and you know spits it all up in the air and stuff like that. Um, anyway, uh, the that's probably not particularly useful for an academic audience, but there you go. This is I, I think in cartoon terms most of the time. Um, the I, I I feel like that as far as what I've been able to be exposed to in in all of just this good stuff from the early church that I've, I've come across that I find so, so helpful. But the thing is, if you're looking at all this, almost none of this, it was originally written for an academic audience. You think of like, hey, you know, you scholar of the early church, et cetera. Like almost none of these things were written originally for any kind of academics. They're written for, you know, people like me and you, people who think about cartoons in their head when they're trying to, you know, do some sort of academic podcast thing. Um, and it is, it, it's, it's intelligible. Uh, it's it, it helps us, I think, to understand scripture better, and I find it just be really in, in, inspiring as well. Just great, great stuff. So I, I'm I'm hoping to go into write a uh, you know a, a book once I, I kind of clear the plate of this stuff. That will that will go and do do that, and hopefully be able to you know share these kinds of things with people who who aren't academics. Something that I mean, the, the goal that I have and the thing that's in my heart is to write a book that you could give to your grandma, um, and and that she'd be able to understand and read because. You know when you know when Clement is writing, or when Ignatius is writing, or when Irenaeus is writing, he's not just writing for somebody with a theology degree. He's writing, you know, he's writing for your grandma. He's writing for, for they're right, they're right, writing for, for for everybody. And so, if I can help to make that, um, you know, make those kinds of things accessible to folks, that's that's something that I feel I have I have a responsibility to, to to do. So that sounds wonderful, and I look forward to seeing the work that comes uh, in the future for you. I'll, I'll be on the lookout for those things. Thank you again so much for your time today, Dr. Thomas. Are there any closing words you want to give? And also, I'd love for you to let people know where they can find uh, what you're up to or your work in general. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I don't really... We we got three kids and we have a fourth one coming. And I honestly, I don't, I don't, have, I don't have a whole lot of time to do you know, kind of do the social media stuff and all those sorts of things. So, you know, I'll, I use Facebook occasionally and I mostly just post C.S. Lewis quotes on there and pictures of my kids and things like that. And so I'm happy to go and connect with anybody either through there, you know, or any, anything like that. And I love, I, I just, you know, honestly love, love hearing from folks as well. I, I, I'm always learning from people who are thinking about this on their own, who are studying these sources on their own. So, um, and you can, you know, send, send me a message, an email anytime. I love, just love, love hearing people. 
Awesome. And I will be sure to link uh, to Amazon. Is that most convenient for your book? Is there a better yeah, place? That you... that's, that's totally fine. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. And thanks for the time of all of you who watch this whenever it is in the future that you watch this. I do not take that lightly. I'll close as I always do by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. But most importantly, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world.